Welcome to Breaking the Case, True Stories by NYPD Detectives, a podcast written and produced by the New York City Police Department and supported by the New York City Police Foundation. I'm your host, Detective Carrie Riley. This is the fifth and final episode of the Baby Hope case. In the summer of 1991, the body of a small child was found in a cooler on the side of a highway. And right on the front page is about this little girl being found up in Washington Heights. 22 years later, a tip was called into Crime Stoppers. And then I said, look, please, anything you could tell me, I don't care how strange it sounds, will help, because we've got nothing. Almost three months after the tip came in, a DNA test proved that Baby Hope's mother was a woman in Queens named Margarita Castillo. Margarita said that she hadn't seen her daughter since her husband's family took her. At the end of the last episode, a suspect was in custody. It's October 12th, 2013, in the early hours of the morning. Our reporter is Edward Conlon, a former detective. This story contains some extremely disturbing content and may not be suitable for everyone. Please be advised. Episode 5, Baby Hope, In the Box. At this point, we know that Baby Hope is Angelica Castillo. Eight days ago, we found that out. Angie was four years old, just over three feet tall, and maybe weighed 30 pounds when she was raped and murdered. Now we got a guy in the box. The guy. Her cousin, Conrado Juarez. We've gotten truth on the installment plan. First, Conrado says he's in Mexico when Angie died. Then he says his sister calls him to help move a cooler, but he doesn't know what's inside. And then he knows, but he never saw the body. And then he helps tie up the body, but he doesn't know how she died. And then, yes, he admits to having what he calls accidental sex with the little girl, but it was a day or maybe days or weeks apart from her death. Not believing him is not enough. We have to get more out of him. This is the videotaped interrogation of Conrado Juarez by Assistant District Attorney Melissa Morges and Detective Robert Dewhurst of the Cold Case Squad. Detective Carlos Vasquez is serving as interpreter. It does not get off to a good start. Now that I have given you this information about your rights, um, are you willing to talk to me? No. Do you want to talk with us? No. He said he doesn't want to speak with us. Some of the most famous court cases in American history have set down the extremely specific rules about how cops can talk to suspects in custody. The main issue is whether a statement is voluntary and intelligent. Suspects don't have to say anything to begin with, and they can stop talking whenever they want. But unless a suspect requests a lawyer, a detective doesn't have to stop asking questions. Bobby Dewhurst knows that. He holds up the earlier version of the Miranda rights, which Conrado signed. It's the same as what you signed earlier, though. It's the same thing. It's the same thing that you signed before, that you wanted to speak. It's the same thing. Yes, I want to speak. Yes. So that was good to hear, and it was good to have on video. He states that um, his sister who passed away called him and told him to come to the apartment. This sister is Belvina? Si. She wanted him the following day to move a uh, 
cooler. He's trying to go with an earlier version of the story. Remember? He's home, he gets a call, his sister needs help moving a cooler. We're past that. We're supposed to be. Bobby Dewhurst is definitely past it. Come on. Remember how we just spoke a little while ago? You said um, you came home, Balbino was in one room, the girls were in another room, sleeping. It's slow going, very simple and specific questions and statements, two languages. Melissa Morges asks most of the questions. You said you got home and everyone was sleeping? Conrado sits with his arms folded. Sometimes he shifts in his seat. The chair swivels. He looks at Melissa Morges when she asks a question, and then he looks at Carlos when he translates. He looks tired but alert. He nods his head, grunts here and there when he agrees but he says as little as he can. And what happened after that? He's referring that he said that Angie was not alive when he, when he got there. When Angie was still alive, you, you told the detectives that you had very affectionate sexual relations with Angie. That was uh, way before that, that night. That, hey. Okay, mm-hmm. so tell, okay. tell me... Tell me The purpose of this interrogation is to get an admitted child rapist to also admit that he's a murderer. How do you do that? The legal objective is a process of connection, connecting the rape and the murder. We have to prove that the two crimes were a single event. Remember, the cause of death is homicidal asphyxiation. Baby Hope was suffocated. And you try and connect the two crimes by separating the man from the act. To do that, you minimize and you empathize. They're minimizing when they talk about what happened as an accident, but the empathy is sincere. The detectives and the DA believe, they have to believe, there's some humanity in Conrado they can reach. Otherwise, he's going to walk out of the room a free man. Tell us what happened. He said he, he came out drunk. He was unaware of what happened. And it happened by accident. It would be slow going even if they all spoke the same language. Melissa Morges tries to pin him down on the specifics. What happened between you and Angie? Was, was Angie asleep? In, was it nighttime? What did you say to Angie and what did you do with Angie? Conrado's answers are as vague as he can make them. Again, he says he was drunk, it was an accident, but there was sexual contact. Here's a highlight reel of questions. You said she was already awake when this happened. She didn't say anything. Did you think she might tell somebody what you did? No, he says, he didn't. Tell me about what happened when um, Belvina called you and, and asked for your help. How do you know that she was dead? How did Angie look? Did she have any marks on her, any bruises? He says he couldn't see. It was night. No, the lights weren't on. And no, he wasn't curious. Balbina told him not to ask questions. Didn't you want to know what happened to Angie? No, he says. Melissa moves on. So you had to put Angie in the cooler, right? Yes. Okay. How did you do that? Conrado's much more willing to talk about that. In the video, he looks relaxed, relatively, and he goes into a lot more detail. He gestures with his hands to show how the body fit into the cooler. 
Bobby gives him a piece of paper, and Conrado folds it to show them. He talks about the ropes, the bag, the cloth, the soda cans. He takes them through the trip in the taxi to Inwood with Balbina, but he still insists she wouldn't tell him what happened. Did you see the cooler on TV? Sí. Yes. And did you know it was the same cooler? It was the same cooler that we bought. What did you think when you saw this on TV? At first, I, I wanted to go to the police, but then I pulled back because I said, that's my sister. She's going to get very upset at me. Did you worry that somebody would recognize Angie and call the police? At that time, I, I was confused. He's backsliding again. It's time to push him a little. You know that when they found Angie, they took her body to the place where doctors examine the dead. You understand that, correct? Do you know about DNA? Have you heard about that on TV? What do you think the DNA test will show? If, if the DNA comes back positive, what can I do? I have to accept it. So, Conrado, what we spoke about before with Angelica, remember? You were drunk. You did not want to hurt her. Tu no querías hacerle daño a la No, no, no. There's a lot of feeling in that response. You want that. Bobby Dewhurst is glad to hear it. You didn't want to hurt her, but something happened. Tú no, it was an accident. Tú no querías hacerle daño a ella, right. pero fue un accidente. Exactamente. Exact, exactly. I mean, it was a drink. Era la bebida. Sí. Right. Yes. Tell me what happened so I can understand that it was an accident. And so Conrado does. He says Angie's coming out of the bathroom when he goes into the apartment. Did you hold her by the hand to bring her in, or did she just follow you? Did you put your hands on her mouth so she wouldn't make a noise? We're narrowing in here. This is the likeliest scenario for a rape turning into a murder. I think I would be worried that a little girl would make a noise. No, he says. Time to step back a bit. Let me ask you, were you concerned that she might tell somebody what happened? And he's shutting down again. Step back again and move to the side. There's a lot of dead air and shrugging in the next six minutes, so I'll just give you the gist. Basically, he says that because there was no penetration, it wasn't such a big deal. That's why he wasn't afraid Angie would tell Balbina or Ephigenia later. And that's why she didn't yell or cry out at the time. I do not think <coughs> you're a monster. Conrado nods when she says that. He agrees, uh-huh, before the line is translated. Is it possible, by accident, that you could have rolled over on Angie and you were drunk and, and you hurt her? Is it possible, by accident, you wanted to keep her quiet, and you put your hands on her mouth, and you hurt her? Is it possible by accident that you may have put your hands on her throat and hurt her by accident? Is that possible? That's really first-rate minimizing and normalizing and sympathizing and empathizing at the same time. But he doesn't go for it. No, 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 no. Not at any moment. How can you be so sure? You were saying you were drunk. You were saying you lost control. He said he reacted with control, which I don't understand. That, that, 
<clears throat> that does not make sense. They're at an impasse. Bobby Dewhurst steps in. You said it was an accident, right? Tu dijiste que fue un accidente. You didn't plan this. It just happened. Esto pasó. Tu no querías esto pasar. Right? Conrado says, no, 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 it was just that once, and it was days and days before Angie died. They go around in circles like that for a while. They've been at it for an hour and 50 minutes. Time for a reset. This is Bobby Dewhurst. Come around. Are you afraid of us? No, 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 no. no, no, no. Have no. we treated no. you unfairly? You've been with us a lot tonight, right? We just want to find out what happens. So Angie can rest, and we can answer the mystery. He nods. We're all in this together is always a good approach. There's a hint of a religious theme, too, so Angie can rest. This must have been very frightening for you. You must have been panicked and upset. She asks how he felt when he found out that Angie was dead. Sad, he says. Anything else? Just said, not nervous? No, not at all. There's a dead child in, 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 in your house and you're not nervous that the police will come? This is the next two minutes. Not a little scared? No. Are you sure? No. Why weren't you scared? I wasn't. Why didn't you tell anybody what happened to Angie? It was easier for me to stay shut. The DA asks Conrado if Balbina would be angry at him if he called the police. No, 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 no. It makes me wonder, was Balbina really that scary? However bad she was to small children, Conrado was a grown man, and she's been dead for almost 20 years. Time to take another tack. When you go on the subway, would you pay your, pay your fare on the subway? Yes. Why would you pay the fare? Because you don't want the police to arrest you, right? It might seem that the conversation has taken a strange turn, and it has. But these kinds of kindergarten-level analogies often work pretty well. And when you're hitting a stretch of really dumb, reflexive denials, it's a good move to change the subject to something you can both agree on. Conrado responds to the subway analogy. He insists that he always pays his fare because it's the law. But things stall there. Calling the cops about a dead child in the house just didn't occur to him at the time, he says. They take a break for a couple of minutes. Is there another way to go at him? Yes, there always is. This is what Melissa asks when they come back. It seems to me that the reason you didn't want to call the police is because you yourself were afraid, as you said. You were afraid you would get in trouble, right? Yes, Conrado admits. So you were worried about you. Yes. You know that there were other people in the house when this happened, right? 
And you know that Maribel is all grown up. Maribel knows what happened. Maribel sabe qué pasó. She, she didn't know. That's a funny thing to say. How would he know what she knows? Maribel is Angie's sister. She was in another room, he says. Melissa says Ephigenia knows too. Ephigenia is Conrado's sister. Conrado says that she only figured it out when she saw the Baby Hope story on TV. That was a long time ago. She's known for many years what happened, right? It's starting to sink in. Maybe his secret isn't so safe anymore. We need the truth from you about what happened. We need to know what happened to Angie before the sex or during the sex or after the sex that, that killed her. I like what Carlos says there, Senor Juarez. A little step back toward formality. Carlos starts to lean in more here. His voice gets a little warmer, a little faster, almost pleading. He doesn't stop to speak English after each exchange. It's just the two of them. Before? Sí. Okay. Sí, he said it was an accident. Okay. It happened. The accident that she was suffocated. That's it. Two hours, seven minutes, and 48 seconds into the video. That's where it breaks. They've got the confession. They want a little more. Por favor, es por la muchacha. Please, for the girl. Getting close. Carlos says that again. Por la muchacha. Por favor. What happened? How was she suffocated? Conrado says she was suffocated. How can I explain? It's suggested that he could show them. No, he says, I don't want to do that. He didn't want to reenact the crime. She was suffocated with a cabecera. What's that? Carlos Vasquez doesn't know either. The Spanish word for pillow is almohada. Una qué? Una cabecera. ¿Qué es su cabecera? Conrado mimics sleeping. His head tilts to the side, and he raises a hand beneath it like... A pillow? No, sí. Cabecera means headboard. I looked it up. I asked a half dozen Spanish-speaking friends about the word. They didn't know it. You don't want to be confused when you're this close. You're closer than close. You're there. 
but at least a defense lawyer wouldn't be able to say the detectives put words in his mouth when they didn't know the word themselves. He says part of a bed. Uh-huh. Conrado doesn't seem tired anymore. He's lively, going back and forth. Yes, that part's true. No, it didn't happen that way. Melissa draws a bed, a rectangle, with a square inside at one end, like a pillow. Conrado looks at the picture, says yes. Bobby Dewhurst guesses. Pillows? That seems to be what they're talking about. But Capacera it is throughout the conversation. Cover our mouth. Cover our mouth. That's what it was. That was it. He covered Angie's mouth with a pillow. They needed more details in his own words. They got them. He went through the story again. The cords, the cooler, the taxi, the park. We're at the end here. Hay momentos que sentí una una gran tristeza. At that moment, I felt very sad. Carlos undersells that one a little. Un gran tristeza is a great sadness. What can I do? It happens. I can't go back into time, man. I can't mm-hmm. go back into time. No argument there. The detectives and the DA thanked Conrado, and he thanked them. Okay, gracias, gracias también ustedes, gracias. Tú quieres algo? Te le agradece. He said he's grateful, thank you. Gracias. The weight is off his shoulders. Oh, se siente bien? He feels good. He said it's a big difference from keeping it inside, and then when you release it, it's a big difference. It did make all the difference. Melissa, Carlos, and Bobby left the room. It was over. This is Bobby Dewhurst. One guy comes in, and he was, like, real excited. He was like, do you know what you just did? I I don't think it really uh, set in. I think I, I was fatigued, I was tired, I worked, you know, pretty much eight days straight. Everybody was happy. It was a good night. It was that feeling of accomplishment. It was also like, like, wow. We closed one of the biggest cases, uh, or notorious cases the city's ever had. We were all shaking hands and giving hugs. Chief O'Neill is happy. And Chief O'Neill watched almost all of it through the two-way glass. Evelyn Gutierrez had stayed through the night as well. It was so relieving to hear that he was finally giving it up. It was Saturday morning. The detectives came into work Thursday, and they hadn't left since. This is Commissioner O'Neill. It was an intense, uh, as I recall, 59 hours, uh, you know, almost 59 hours straight. I think I slept for three hours during that 59 hours. <laughs> I gave uh, Chief Resnick a call and say, Chief, we got him. He's like, what are you talking about? We just locked up that asshole that killed uh, baby Hope. And he's like, you're kidding me. He said, you're kidding me. And he goes, where you at right now? I said, we're at Gold Street. We're, we're doing the processing and stuff. Before I hang up the phone, he asked me, is it okay if I tell anybody? I go, well, no one knows, Chief, except us here in the DA. He goes, well, I just want to tell Jerry. I go, yeah, yeah, that's not a problem. I then got the call like in the middle of the night that he was in and that he had confessed to the crime. And that's what I mean. I got dressed. I went right over to Gold Street and I got to witness his arrest firsthand. He shows up at the office. He comes in, waves to O'Neill. And I look up. He's like, hey, Wendell. He goes, where's the little bastard at? I go, he's in the back. He goes, come back here. So I go back because we have a cell. And we go back there and he goes, that's him? And he tells him, stand up. And Conrado stands up. Resident takes a look at him, and he goes, uh, he goes, okay. He goes, great job, guys, great job. And he walks out, he's happy. This is Bobby Dewhurst again. I said to uh, Chief O'Neill, I said, uh, hey, 
Would you be upset if I let Joe Resnick do something he probably should have signed off on uh, 20 some odd years ago? He's like, no, what do you want to do? I want him to sign off on the arrest. And uh, Jimmy O'Neill was, you know, he was gracious. He said, yeah, let him do it. Something I had promised myself came true. And just seeing this guy in the cell uh, and knowing that he had confessed, uh, there's no there's no words to describe it. We'll be back after the break. Soon, everyone knew. As you heard first here on 1010 Wins, an arrest tonight in the murder case of the little girl known as Baby Hope. Police have arrested a relative in the case, 52-year-old Conrado Juarez, one of the child's cousins. He was 30 years old at the time. For the cops who worked the case from the beginning, the news was a little unreal. Joe Neenan was the original case detective in the 3-4 squad. He'd been retired since 2001. He really thought he was dreaming when he found out. He'd fallen asleep on the couch in front of the TV when the news came on. It was in the middle of the night, like 3, 4 in the morning. I go, what was that? So I had to stay awake for like the next news segment. And then I, after that, I did get a call from uh, the Cold Case Squad. Amazing. We had through all these years, you know. Remember Mark Giffen, the sergeant assigned to the medical examiner's office? He retired in 2005. I asked him where he was when he heard. I know that whatever I was doing, I stopped and I sat down and I actually said a prayer, thank God. This is a good day. And Jerry Giorgio, the arrest is in October 2013. Jerry retired from the DA's office three months before in July. At the time, it didn't look like they were any closer to solving the baby Hope case than they were in 1991. I'll let his daughter, Lisa Jocelyn, explain. He had had many health problems before that, and it was kind of hard for him. He loved his profession and only wanted to, to work. When this happened, he just became my father again. Other reactions were more complicated. Sean Kenny was the first officer at the scene. He was a rookie then. He did six years in the 3-4, went on to become a detective in narcotics. He retired as a sergeant. So Baby Hope was his case, his job, for a day. And there were thousands of jobs after. A lot of dead bodies, too. Did you ever think that they'd solve it? No. If you don't get this stuff right away, Usually it just gets washed away with time. And I was shocked when they, they made a collar on it. And I was really even more surprised to find out how they did it. You know, putting up flyers and stuff like that. You know, I, you know that's real old school stuff. I, but it worked, you know, so good on them. The first time I talked to Sean Kenny, he told me that Baby Hope had an impact on him, but he more or less shook it off. I saw a lot of horrible things. And I guess um, you just kind of get acclimated to it. You can't let things bother you. Otherwise, you're just going to be useless out there. Later on, he wanted to revise his statement. He talked to his wife since. But my wife was like, what are you talking about? When that first happened, I remember you waking up and, and you were like having nightmares about it. I remember seeing that kid's face in those nightmares. So I guess I put this all in a filing cabinet way in the back of my head. Other people never learned the trick of the mental filing cabinet. Joe Rizzo was the construction worker who found the body. I thought they'd never find out who she was. Did you follow the case in the newspapers? I tried not to. My mother did. God rest her soul. Every piece of clipping that came through the news or when it was on, she either called me and cut the clippings out and sent them to me. 
Actually, Rizzo had to spend more time at the crime scene than any of the detectives did. It was his job site. He had to go back the next day and the next until the job was done. Same as the other two guys who found the cooler, Bob Perdue and Timmy Ohm. Did you talk about it with uh, Bob and Tim? Bobby actually, I think, went on America's Most Wanted back then. I wanted nothing to do with it. We talked about it a little bit, but then it kind of just didn't want to talk about it anymore. Did it affect them, do you think, as deeply as it affected you? I'm sure it did. How can it affect you? The funeral two years later. I just didn't have the heart to go. Joe had a good life, got married, four kids, good job, working hard. But there were other bad days, too. Oh, I worked till May of 2001. That's when I got hurt on the Triborough Bridge. And what happened to you there? A piece of concrete fell 50 feet and landed on my head. So I got forced into retirement. So physical pain as well that he still deals with. But I'm not sure if he'd say it was worse than that memory from the summer of 91. When uh, the arrest was made in 2013, how did you hear about it? I want to say I heard it on the news and then... The DA, Melissa Moore, just called me and asked me if I would be willing to come in, talk with her. When Melissa Moore just called, Joe Rizzo did what he had to do. The first trip I made was to go in and sit and talk with her and a couple of the other people from the DA's office. The next time I came, I met Detective Robert Dewhurst and a bunch of people from the police department and the DA's office on the Henry Hudson Bridge and we walked through the original crime scene. And I pretty much walked down into the woods almost to the exact spot where the cooler was without anybody even telling me. It was pretty freaky. I didn't want to be back there, but after talking with Melissa and her asking me for the help and stuff, I kind of felt like I had to do it for them and for baby Hope. Joe Rizzo had to testify in the grand jury. I was testifying and one of the the people, I guess, the grand jury people, he actually had a can of Coke, and that's what was in the cooler. And that just, that was just a freak. That it made me, you know, just start to cry. I don't want to say I don't believe in God because I was raised Catholic and all of that, everything, but I still don't know what possessed me that day to, one, go down to the cooler and open it, and two, why did I cut it open so gentle? I have no idea. But something made me do that. This case is personal for me, and being with Melissa and being with Detective Dewhurst and all of that, I seen how hard they worked for it to, to get justice for her. To get justice, that wasn't done yet. This is the complicated part of the story, and I'm going to tell it the fastest way I can. For 22 years, the NYPD was desperate to get whatever media attention they could for the case, and we didn't mind the accolades after the arrest. Here's a TV clip with Detective Elena Donnell from Crime Stoppers. Take us to that time. You're here, it happened right here at this desk, right? Right, right, it I could tell in the caller's voice that there was a sense of urgency that I hadn't heard in any of the calls. Conrado Juarez's lawyer held a press conference claiming the confession was coerced. A couple of days later, Conrado did an interview with a New York Times reporter named Francine Robles. Nine out of ten of her previous pieces were about coerced confessions, so this was her beat. But in her article, Suspect Recants, The Short Life of Baby Hope, 
it's pretty clear that she does not smell Pulitzer in the Conrado Juarez story. She spends 45 minutes with him in Rikers Island. He denies raping and killing Angie, but otherwise he sticks to his warm-up versions of his confession. Balbina calls to move a cooler and so on. There's some new material, too, and it's unpersuasive. He says the reason Angie was tied up was because she acted up. She hit her sister. And that Balbina told him Angie died from falling down the stairs. It's a pretty long article, given that the reporter plainly doesn't believe him. When Conrado claims that his sister called him on a cell phone, she notes that only 3% of the U.S. population had a mobile telephone in 1991. And it ends with a quote from Conrado, Who would believe me? Not Francine Robles, apparently. The DA's office wanted the reporter to testify. Francine Robles would be able to corroborate large parts of what Conrado said. And nobody could claim she was twisting his arm. No news organization wants its reporters to have to take the stand, ever. And in New York State, what's called a shield law agrees almost all of the time. Under the law, confidential sources have absolute protection. Conrado's on-the-record interview was obviously not confidential. But for a reporter to be forced to testify about non-confidential information, it has to be both essential to the case and unobtainable from any other source. Papers were filed and positions were argued. In April 2016, the trial judge ruled that the reporter had to testify. The Times appealed. In October 2016, the appellate division agreed with them. They thought the DA could make its case without the reporter. And then the DA appealed to the New York State Court of Appeals, the next and last stop. In June 2018, those judges said the appellate division made a mistake. It didn't matter how important they thought the reporter's testimony was. Only the trial judge could decide what the jury needed to hear. But by that time, there was a new trial judge. The Baby Hope case had been reassigned. The new judge made the same ruling as the old judge. The reporter had to testify. The Times filed what's called an Article 78 motion. That's sort of a last-ditch, break-glass-in-case-of-emergency appeal. And while that was being decided, this happened. The man accused of killing a toddler known as Baby Hope has died in custody. 57-year-old Conrado Juarez died of complications related to pancreatic cancer. Five years ago... I really don't have a problem that Conrado Juarez never faced a reckoning in a court of law. We got the bad guy. The world now knows Baby Hope's real name. And we know what happened to her. But let's go back to the fall of 2013. Other situations were also unresolved. There was a lot of anger at Margarita Castillo after the news broke. Why hadn't she done anything for all those years? Why didn't she ever call the cops? At first, she wouldn't talk to the press, and then she gave an interview to Telemundo. She said, I didn't call the police for fear of not being heard, of not knowing the language. That was my mistake. She also said that she didn't believe that Angie was really missing since her father had taken her. A lot of people didn't want to hear that. 
Joe Rizzo was one of them. It's your daughter. I have four kids. I have a daughter, three boys, five grandchildren. How do you don't say your daughter's missing? I have no love loss for the mother at all. The most vocal contingent were the old crew, the detectives who worked the case from the beginning. This is Joe Neenan. It's a baby. Somebody's got to know something. And to this day, I can't believe that somebody didn't come forward. And Jerry Giorgio was very public in his opinion. He did not think much of Margarita. I asked Kay Giorgio about it. Any mother that didn't do her job, he didn't have too much use for him. What was interesting was how the cold case detectives took the opposite stance. Wendell Stratford was pretty passionate about it. It wasn't nice. I didn't like it. The cold case detectives had seen Margarita at home with her kids and grandkids. It was a busy, happy, ordinary scene. Wendell talked about being with her when she was confronted with the reality of Angie's death. Husband sat next to her, and she started clasping her hands, and she was rocking back and forth, and then she started crying. You just felt bad for it. He talked about how Margarita was still afraid of Hanaro, her ex. She kept a picture of him so her kids would know what he looked like, just in case. They used to watch for him. I mean, she did tell us that they kept track of him. I don't know why. She might have always been worried that he was going to come back and, you know, take the other girls from him. She was trying to get her life on track after Gennaro had disrupted the entire thing. Um, and as far as she knew, the kids were with him somewhere, and then she just started a whole new family. Evelyn Gutierrez felt the same. In the beginning when I first saw her, she was like with a bunch of like kids, and they seemed to be her grandkids. And uh, she seemed very normal, like a mom, like a grandmother. She was like me, I'm a mom. Culturally, it seems kind of normal to um, have the children being raised by other family members, especially if they're coming into this country. Bobby Dewhurst talked about Margarita having two abusive husbands, about being an immigrant in the city, maybe fearful of police. Anyway, as far as Margarita's concerned, I go back and forth. Remember, the Crime Stoppers tip originated from inside the family. Somebody knew something. But a lot of people are pretty good at refusing to believe what they can't accept. There's no need for me to judge. A lot of guys were bitter. Uh, they were bitter by the fact that no one ever reported this little girl missing, but I think they didn't know the whole story. Uh, you know, there was a, a, Margarita was married to an individual back then who says he's taken Angelica back to Mexico. And she, somewhere deep down inside, she probably didn't believe that, but that's probably what was conveyed to the sisters. I'm not being naive, but I just see it a lot differently. I first talked to Chief Resnick almost 20 years ago, but I couldn't say that I knew him. A couple of days after we taped, he sent me something in department mail. It was a laminated prayer card. One side had a picture of an angel leading a little girl by the hand. They're about to cross a stream. The other side had a poem. I wanted to know more about it. I asked the chief if we could sit down and talk again. By the way, I, I think I told you, this was written by my daughter-in-law and my wife, and they knew the Baby Hope story. Yeah, I'd say they knew the story. There was that family vacation in the Poconos in the summer of 91. It ended early. Chief, I'm guessing you might have mentioned the case at home now and then in the meantime. 
This statement might refresh your memory. If I was stuck on that Frog's Neck Bridge uh, entrance, I'd just do a U-turn. My wife sometimes would say, where are we going? I says, you know where we're going. This is from the poem. You were known as Baby Hope for many years, but now we have a name to connect to our tears. Year after year, detectives had to cope until justice could be served for their baby hope. Finally, your identity and story has been told. Your short life will forever be a memory we hold. Angelica, your true name, an honor to release. You are finally free and can rest in peace. Let's go back to the fall of 2013 when everybody's still amazed by the news. Eight days between the ID of the victim and the arrest of the perp. More than 8,000 days since the case began. 8,117 to be precise. No matter if they worked it for a day or for decades, it was all out. From Joe Neenan and Joe Resnick and Jerry Giorgio at the beginning, to Elena Donnell and Wendell Stratford and Bobby Dewhurst, who brought it home. Assistant District Attorney Melissa Morges was there every day of those 8,000 days. And Father Rudy Gonzalez was there almost as long. He said the funeral mass for Baby Hope, an anniversary mass is for 20 years after. It was time to get the old gang back together. And it was time to put Baby Hope's real name on the stone. This is Father Gonzalez. When the headstone was placed, uh, for Baby Hope, 20 years later, uh, we reconnected again and we, uh, we did another ceremony in, in the cemetery in St. Raymond's. Joe Resnick told Bobby Dewhurst to ask the Castillo family to come. He wasn't going to try and force things to make everybody pretend to be friends. Wendell Stratford kept the Castillo family company. They waited respectfully off to the side. The police department had a little ceremony. And then when the officers started moving away from the gravesite, I brought in the family and I let them see the gravesite for the very first time with Angelica's name affixed to the stone. I asked everybody I talked to about what they remember that day. Mostly it was a blur. Father Gonzalez knows what he said because it's the prayer he always says at that time and place. Since Almighty God has called our baby sister from this life to himself, we commit her body to the earth from which it was made. It was a good day. It's the happiest ending they could have hoped for with baby Hope. But happy isn't the word for this. Police are not in the happiness business. Grant her a place with your angels and saints. Angels and saints. Remember what Joe Resnick said about cold case? Sometimes you need a pair of fresh eyes to see what's always been there. How many times had he been to St. Raymond's over the years? He was always staring at the name Baby Hope and at the empty space below it where her true name would go. Finally, we knew it. Angelica, Angelica Castillo. On the day of the ceremony, he noticed something else. Two figures on the top of the stone. If you look at the picture of the stone, there are two little angels there. Uh, is that a coincidence or is that part of the faith? Eternal rest grant unto her, O Lord, and let perpetual light shine upon her. May her soul and the souls of all the faithfully departed through the mercy of God rest in peace. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening.
This case was solved because an anonymous woman called in a Crime Stoppers tip. We still need your help with the next story. Parts of a woman's body were found in a park in South Brooklyn. Someone somewhere is missing Monique. You know, her name might not be Monique, but she has a family somewhere. We are hoping that someone out there knows who she is, and we won't give up until we find out. Breaking the Case is produced by the New York City Police Department and supported by the New York City Police Foundation. Thanks to Winds AM and PIX11 News. Thank you for listening. This is Breaking the Case. I'm your host, Detective Carrie Riley. Until next time, be safe.